Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our second lesson in the life of Christ. Today we're going to begin looking at the actual life of Christ by examining the birth, infancy, childhood, baptism, and temptation of Christ, taking him all the way up to really the inauguration of his public ministry. I think you're going to find this study very interesting, especially as we look at the temptation and ask the question, could Christ have been tempted or not, and if so, was it a valid temptation? So join us as we begin today's study. Father, thanks for tonight and for bringing us out here to open the Word and to study it. I pray that you guide our thoughts and hearts as we think about these things, as we are exposed to the life of our Savior, that we may know Him in a maybe a deeper way, may understand His life a little better. We thank you for sending your Son to give us eternal life, to die for our sins. I pray that we'd appreciate that and just uh, help us as we ponder these truths to really think about this great Savior that we have. In Christ's name, amen. Um, what we're going to do is get right in. Now, normally when I teach this, we do a little bit of a excursion into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm not going to do that because we just did that. Yeah, we just did that, so we don't need to do that again. Um other than, you know, just spend a few minutes talking about you have these four separate accounts of Christ's life. And, of course, what's Matthew emphasizing in Christ's life? What, what part of Christ is he emphasizing? Christ is the king, right? Um, he's the rightful king of the Jews. So it's a very Jewish book. And then there's uh, Luke. What's Luke portraying Christ as? No. Son of man. Yeah, he's the son of man. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was the son of man. He was 100% human. All right, it it displays his humanity to to a large extent. And then, of course, you have Mark. Mark shows Christ as the servant. He's the one that is very busy, busy, busy doing stuff. And then John, of course, portrays Christ as the Son of God, deity of Christ. And all, yeah, Son of God. Mark is a servant. King, servant, man, God. King, servant, man, God. And um, although each, basically, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, cover the same basic events, because they're using probably an oral tradition to put a framework to the life of Christ, but then they're adding their own material. Don't need to talk about the synoptic issue. We did that. Basically, the basic thing to understand is that the gospel writers were primary authors and witnesses. Matthew, of course, he walked with Christ for many years. John was a disciple of Christ. Luke um, was very familiar with the life of Christ because of Paul. Mark, of course, he was with Peter. So. They saw the life of Christ. So what God has done, what God has given, the Holy Spirit has given us, is four 
accounts of the life of Christ. Now some say, why did he do that? Why didn't he just give us one? Why do you think that's the case? Why didn't he just give us one comprehensive, all-encompassing life of Christ? It's the different perspectives that look at it from different angles giving us a fuller vision. Mm-hmm. The bigger picture. Yeah, think about how hard it would how hard would it be to portray all four facets of Christ in one book by one author? That'd be kind of hard to do. But if you have four separate ones from four separate perspectives, you can see the other sides a lot easier, a lot better. And that's why God gave us four. Now, the thing to understand is this. We don't have five and we don't have three. We have four. That's the whole issue of canonization, the whole issue of how do we know we have the books that God wants us to have. Because there's this guy out there called Robert Funk in the Jesus Seminar that says we should have another gospel. It's the Gospel of Thomas. Got to toss that one in. These gospels were rejected early on. The four gospels that we have were universally accepted by the early church. So we don't need any other gospel. There were not other gospels that almost made it to the canon and didn't quite get there. Um, no, these are the four that we have. And all we know about Christ is from these four gospels. Because this is what God wants us to know about Christ. So if it's not in the gospels, what is it? It's not, speculation. Speculation. Now why is that important? Well, Last week we talked about the mythological um, concepts of Christ, and we got this one very popular one today that Christ was this this world traveler, and he got a lot of his um, theological ideas from the Middle East, from the Far East, from Hinduism and Buddhism, and you know the mystical religions of the India. That's very common in the New Age circles. There's no evidence for that. There's no evidence that Christ really wandered very far out of Israel other than he went up to Phoenicia there, Tyre and Sidon area, and he went over to the Decapolis, there's no indication that he went any farther than that. In fact, if there's any indication hinted at in Scripture, it's that everybody was wondering about Christ, saying, isn't this the guy we grew up with? Why all of a sudden is he so special? Remember? I mean, isn't this Jesus the carpenter's son? Isn't these his brothers and sisters? And you know, the thing that really surprised the Nazareth crowd is why is this guy so special? We grew up with him. Now, if Christ was a world traveler and not there, how would that have gone? You know, they, would, they wouldn't have known who he was. There's a, there's a strong intimation, at least, in that account that Christ was a familiar figure to them. They knew him. He was there. He wasn't wandering the earth. Coming up with his theology, as the History Channel would like you to believe. So, in our looking at the life of Christ, we're basically going to look at his life chronologically, and we're going to take a couple of detours along the way to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, to talk about the parables of Christ. Um, but basically, we're just start at his childhood and work our way forward in his life. So we're going to start with the birth, life of Christ, the birth.
When you look at the life of Christ as recorded in the Gospels, there's two genealogies mentioned. Why is genealogy an important issue? Why would it be necessary to know anything about it? In what way? That he was the line that it was foretold he would come from. Right. That, that, yeah. Um, for him to be king of the Jews, what line did he have to be from? David. David's line, tribe of Judah. And to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, right? Where it talks about from Jesse, a, a, a shoot will come forth. And also from Jacob when he said that the scepters will not depart from Judah where it talks about the king. So we have to be able to trace Jesus' genealogy at least back to David to authenticate his rightful place as king of the Jews. Luke traces an ascending line from Eli, Mary's father, in Luke 3.23 in order to validate Christ's human descent. So you have two genealogies. One for Mary, one one through Mary, one through Christ. Why is the Mary line important? Well, he didn't have an earthly father. He didn't have a earthly father, so it had to be. So she had to be from that line. Well, yeah, she had to be fully human, right? You see the deity and humanity here. And this is interesting, um, Mary's genealogy goes back to who? Did it go back to David? No, it went back further than that. Who did it go back to? It went back to Adam. It showed that Christ was 100% humanity. It shows his direct descent all the way back to Adam. Matthew starts with Abraham, right? Why did Matthew start with Abraham? Well, he was king of the Jews. Jews. So you start with the Jews, right? I thought it was interesting, too, that, uh, you know, they used Joseph's line, even though Joseph, Joseph isn't the father. Yeah, because Joseph gives him the legal line, the name. It was a legal line. Yeah, see, it starts in Matthew here, it starts with Abraham. And in Luke, it goes back to Adam. Okay? But what, what the gospel writer, Matthew, was trying to do is show, without a doubt, that Christ is of the right lineage to be the son of David. He has the right to the throne. And the line of Mary shows that Jesus Christ was fully human, connected to the first Adam. Christ is a second Adam, but he's connected to the first Adam in that he is fully human. Both components are there. It's also interesting in the as you look through the genealogies. Now, what, what, do you, what one thing do you know about biblical genealogies? What is emphasized in a biblical genealogy. Which side of the family? The man. The, man. the male side is, is really the emphasis. 
But it's interesting that even within Christ's lineage, you have four outcasts. What is that telling you about his lineage? Well, it's average, but... Well, remember, he, he did not descend physically from these women. He didn't have a father, but what is it showing about God? Grace. Right? Tamar. What was the story of Tamar? Remember that? Incest. She married uh, Judas' Judas' older son, who died. And then by that legal law of that day, she would be given to the second son in order to raise a family. And he didn't want to have kids by her, so God struck him dead. And then... Uh, third one was young. He was too young to marry her. And Judah said, wait until he's old enough to marry. And you got to understand from her perspective, she was in legal limbo. She could not marry another person. She, she could not. She had to wait for his son to come of age. And when his son came of age, what did Judah do? He didn't give her to his son, but she was stuck. I mean, here's the problem. She is literally stuck. She cannot marry anybody else. She was promised this son. So what did she do? She took matters into her own hands, seduced Judah, had a child by him, incest. Now, it was incest in the sense that not that she was his physical daughter, but that she had married his son who died. So actually, actually it wasn't incest. No, not incest in the sense of incest. And she bore two sons, Perez and Zerah. But that's sort of a sordid little tale. And then, of course, Rahab, what's her story? Yeah. Now, what did God tell Israelites to do to everybody in Canaan? Why'd she get off? Before that, she believed. She believed. And what does that tell you about God's grace? Even if you're from a cursed people, if you exercise faith in God, He's gracious. And she didn't know much. Remember, she knew probably less than your average first grader in Sunday school knew. And yet she banked her life on it. Then we have Ruth. What was Ruth's story? Her husband died. But what descendancy was she? Of what people? Moabite. Moabite. And what did God say about Israel and the Moabites? Kill them all. Why? They were bad because they worshipped the God that, and they burned their children in fires and sacrifices to their God. But where did she come in? Well, she came back with Naomi and married Boaz and was the great-grandmother of David. And then, of course, we have Bathsheba. What was her story? Yeah, we know her story. The adulteress who came 
became the mother of Solomon, but again, she made it into the line. Here's the point I think that you see here. You see God's grace. You see His grace. These are ordinary people, many of them doing very bad things, yet God's grace extends even to them. And it's interesting that in the line of Christ, instead of, although it emphasizes the male lineage, it says there are four women, prominent women, that became part of his line. Is that the four? Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of David. Ruth was the great-grandmother. God's redemption extends to all people. And then we have the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth necessary? Well, there are several reasons. One, it's required because of prophecy. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. What did God tell Eve? Is coming. She can suffer in childbirth, but what is this here a promise of? She's going. Some seed of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. Now, what do you know about the woman? What does she not have? You're, you're, you know, you're close over there. She could, no, she could reach over and slap you one. Where's the seed? From the man. From the man, not the woman. But what is this hint at? Now, is it is it 100% crystal clear here? No. No, but, but when you look back and we understand, say, oh, okay, I understand what God was saying there. There's a seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of Satan. Satan's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the head of Satan. This is the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And right at the fall, I mean right while the fall was still in the air, God promised what? A redeemer. And this was not nuts, what do I do now? This was all planned out. God knew. He knew what Eve would do. He had it all figured out. In Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. Now, Isaiah 7.14 is a tough passage. And um, the reason it's a tough passage is because it's apparently... A double prophecy. Remember when we talked about prophecy, what we meant with a double prophecy? A near, a near fulfillment and a, and a future fulfillment? Sort of like that. This is a double prophecy in the sense that there was a near-term component and a far-term component. Now, What's the story in Isaiah 7? What's the story in Isaiah 7? Let's go. 
Let's go back there and look at that. I think it's helpful for you to get the context of Isaiah 7. And there's a reason for my madness. Isaiah 7. Okay, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, the sons of Ephraim are who? Israel, it's northern Israel. Why is that? Well, Ephraim was the largest tribe in northern Israel, and often when you see in prophetic literature, Ephraim and Judah, Ephraim is, a, is sort of a metonym for northern Israel. Okay? So what happened? Northern Israel and Syria formed an alliance and came down against the king of Judah at this time. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fret, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin, the king of Syria, and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah, and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Israel as king in the midst of it. So what was going on here? Well, Syria and Israel, northern Israel, formed an alliance. They were going to come down and depose the king of Judah and set up a puppet king. And Ahaz, of course, is fret fretting because these are two powerful armies. And Isaiah shows up and tells him, don't fret about these two smoldering firebrands. Now, what is God likening these two kings to? What's the idea of a smoking firebrand? The idea is wood that's burned and it's just sitting there smoldering. Don't worry about it. They're inconsequential. What are you fretting about? Chill out, Ahaz. There's nothing to be afraid of. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, that the head of Syria's for the head of Syria's Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What's God saying? Don't worry about them. They're going to be gone before long anyways. Don't fret about those guys. You can give them a time. Yeah. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. So what is God telling Ahaz? God has just given him a promise. Right? A prophecy. And now what he's at, what's he asking Ahaz for? A sign. For what? 
Why would he ask Ahaz to ask him for a sign? What's God trying to do? He gets his confidence by doing what? God has, God has given you something. God has given you a message. It's tough to understand. And God says, okay, I know you're a little leery of this. I know it sounds hard to believe, so I'll tell you what. Ask me to do a sign. Yeah, he's asking Ahaz, tell me to do something. Tell me to turn the sun out. Tell me to turn the dial back. Tell me to turn the moon off. Tell me to rearrange the stars. Whatever you want, tell me what it is, and I'll do it so that you may know that what I'm saying is true. And so it's Ahaz's response. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds like a pretty pious kind of thing to do, but it really irritated God because, you know, it, Ahaz's heart wasn't in it. And then he says here, okay, hear this, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? God is saying he's a little irritated about this. Why don't you ask for a sign? I'll prove it and you know we can get this thing over with. And you want to piously say, well, I won't tempt you, God. Tongue in cheek. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. All right, so what has God just said? Pretend you don't have the book of Matthew. Pretend you don't know about the virgin birth. Pretend you don't know any of that. What is this a prophecy of? No. See? Put yourself in Ahaz's place. This is Put yourself back in Ahaz's place. And the actual Hebrew word here is Alma, young woman. And God is saying, Behold, a young woman will conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, and before he is old enough to discern good from evil, what's going to happen? Those kings will be, be gone. They'll be gone. So if you're Ahaz, how are you going to understand that? But Prophecy. Ready to have a kid. Somebody. 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 Yeah, somebody will have a child, and, and the idea here. Yeah, it's, it's okay, let's, let's start doing the math. A young woman will conceive, nine months later bear a son, and how old does this kid have to be before he can know the difference between right and wrong? Twelve. Twelve, younger than that maybe. And uh, so God is saying within, we'll pick twelve, within twelve years these nations will be desolate. There'll be no more. Don't need to worry about them. But, 
So that's the primary meaning of this. You understand? The primary meaning of this, this prophecy here was for Ahaz. But behind it is what? A double prophecy. And that's picked up by Matthew in Matthew 121, who quotes this. And says that, Behold, a, a virgin will be of the child, shall bring forth the son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. as a clear reference to Isaiah 7.14. But here's the interesting thing. In Matthew, the word virgin, the word young woman, is Parthenos, which is virgin. <clears throat> It's just spelling. Oh, it's just spelling. It's just spelling. It's just spelling. So what is Matthew saying? Well, when you look back at Isaiah 7.14, which was primarily a prophecy regarding Ahaz in his time, behind that is what? A foreshadowed prophecy of the real Messiah. The real God is with us. And a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and the Holy Spirit used specifically the word Parthenos, not young woman. Okay? Now in Ahaz's time, was it a young woman that conceived? Yeah, it was a young woman. It was not a virgin. There's no two virgin births. There's only one virgin birth. And you see this happening where, where God does this double Prophecy meaning. And here's the, here's the point, though. This has got to be careful. The way you know it's a double prophecy is because the New Testament treats it as a double prophecy. You just don't come up with it yourself. You can't take a prophecy, oh, I'm going to believe there's a double prophecy in that, and then apply it to something totally off the wall. You can't do that. In this case, the Holy Spirit, who authored Scripture, knew what he was saying when he originally wrote the first one, and he used that as a double prophecy, double meaning. But a virgin shall be with child and shall call his name Manuel. So number one, Christ was born of a virgin because prophetically it was said that he would be born of a virgin. Secondly, it's required because Christ is God. Why is that required? What, what, in that case, what forces it to be a virgin birth? That, yeah, that's the next that's the next one. But where does the soul come from? Where does your soul come from? Father and mother. So if he had an earthly father, where would Christ's earthly would soul come from? But he already existed. No, it came from the father above. It's not the father below. Now, understand that the, the, the analogy breaks down because Christ was pre-existent. You know, yeah, you get your head wrapped around that. But the reason, the reason he was virgin born is because Christ was the pre-existent second member of the Trinity with no beginning, no ending. Therefore, had... If Jesus had an earthly father, you'd have two souls. You'd have a schizophrenic. You'd have the human soul and the divine soul. And that it's all mixed up. You get a headache thinking of that. 
He had to bypass a human father. He was God. He, and by the way, here's the important thing to understand. Christ is the only one ever born that was pre-existent. Now that blows Mormonism out of the water. Because in Mormonism, we're all pre-existent souls waiting for somebody to procreate a body that we can inhabit. But that's not what the Bible says. And as Steve pointed out very aptly, it's to required to bypass the imputed guilt of Adam. Why is that important? It wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. Because here's the thing. When a child is conceived, God imputes the guilt of Adam directly to that child by virtue of that child being part of the human line. So had Christ had an earthly father, what would have happened? The imputed guilt of Adam would have been applied to Christ, disqualifying him from being a savior. But since he did not have an earthly father, the imputed guilt of Adam was not imparted to Christ nor did Christ receive the original pollution. What's the thinking on that as far as the imputed guilt? Because you can look at that from one respect and say, well, you know, that's not just. You know, that child wasn't born when Adam fell. Yeah. Two answers to that. Two, two, two lines of argument on that. Number one, the Bible clearly teaches the concept, all right, that the father or a, fa or a father is in some sense federally representative of all his offspring. Okay? Two examples of that would be Adam. Another would be Abraham, remember? In, in Hebrews where Levi paid tithes. Well, how did Levi pay tithes to Melchizedek? Le Levi wasn't even born. But where was Levi? Loins of Abraham, right? So that's 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 just the, that's a axiomatic truth in Scripture, all right. And the second um, line of reasoning is what Paul argues in Romans five, all right. Because what you've pointed out very clearly, Gary, is wait a minute, that doesn't sound fair. So in Romans five, Paul answers that, saying, "Well, is it?" also fair that the righteous deeds of one man can be imputed to you. Is that fair? And the basic line of, or basic answer is that's the way God designed it. God is no more unjust in implying the imputed guilt of Adam to us as he is in applying the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. And that's what you see in Romans 5. Does that make sense? In Adam all die in Christ, all are made alive. For by one man sin in the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Even so, by the obedience of one man, the free gift came upon all men to justification. You know, when we have children, their souls created somewhere at the conception. God provide God, God I believe God built into the human reproductive process. And I don't know how he did this. Yeah. But the soul comes from the mo mother and father. God does not create a new soul. I'm just thinking aloud. And mm -hmm. I, I figure I'd run it past you see if No, that's fine. 
you know, if we're in this fallen state and we have this ability that God has given us, because we're made in his image, and if you look at who we are, there's certain things we can do that are uh, God-like, but they're only measured down to the human level. Mm -hmm. For example, creating life, mm -hmm. a human baby. Yeah. So if we're in this fallen state, then that inhibits us from doing anything positive. Everything that we do, since we are creating something from ourselves and duplicating ourselves, it has to be in the same state that we're in. Yeah. Because of the very fact that we're fallen. Yeah, and that, that's, that's the argument that you see in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, we are sinners not only because we have the imputed guilt of Adam, but we have received from our Father the original pollution, we have the propensity to sin, yes. the selfish nature. And all of you who have kids know you don't need to teach them to sin. They, they know very well how to do that automatic. automatically. It just comes with... They never do is lie. Yeah. <laughs> they don't it, they know it. Yeah. And that shows that corruption can only beget corruption. So Christ had to bypass that corruption. The only way to do that is he had to bypass the Father because it is through Adam, through the man, that the imputed guilt is passed. It's through the man that the imputed guilt is passed to all men. In Adam all die. It doesn't say in Eve all die. It says in Adam all die. All right? Interesting, too, when you look back at Genesis, when God came and looking for him, he called Adam's name. Mm -hmm. In other words, he went straight to the person of the responsibility. That's the thing. I mean, you know, the bottom line is that the man was responsible. Yeah. The woman was deceived. The man was responsible. What do you think of that theory that Adam intentionally ate after... Eve transgressed. Have you ever heard that? Well, Adam intentionally transgressed. So much that he didn't, he, he didn't want to be without her, so he followed her. The Bible doesn't tell us why. That's pure speculation. We'll probably have to ask him when we get to heaven. Why'd you do it? Why'd you really do it? Um, I heard some wags say, well, if you were married to a woman that looked like Eve, you'd do anything she said also. Um, which is a possibility. We don't know. Um, but the whole point is, Adam knowingly did what he did. Eve was deceived. There's no doubt about it. But Adam went in with his eyes wide open. And that's when death passed to all men, to Adam. And we see this universal principle, and Adam all die and Christ all are made alive. And since and Christ was never identified with Adam, since he was begotten by the Holy Ghost, he never had that old man, that old nature, that imputed guilt. And that's why the ver now here's the thing. Let me go through this and then ask a question. When you look at Alma and Parthenos in Isaiah seven fourteen, the word. For virgin is Alma, and it can mean young woman or virgin. It can mean either one in the Hebrew. But Matthew translated Parthenos, which means virgin. 
And also the writers, the translators of the Septuagint use the word Parthenos to translate Alma. And he sort of got this, well, what's a bigger sign? Is it a bigger sign for a young woman to conceive or a virgin to conceive? I think it's a bigger sign for a young for a virgin. Virgin. Yeah. I think it's virgin. Yeah. Because young woman can mean anybody. Mm -hmm. But the problem, the problem is if the real, the primary prophecy, that's to Ahaz, was a virgin, then what was that child? That child was virgin born, which would mean what? He didn't have the original sin. Right. That, that's a road you can't go down. So I don't think that that was the, you know, the primary fulfillment was a young woman who had a child. But the ultimate fulfillment, fulfillment is a virgin who bore the Son of God. So you think that a woman did have a kid back at that time? Yeah. Or did he just use that as an example? Um, I don't see any time frame. Right. I don't see anything in the text that would say I mean, what, what's, what good is it for God to say, give me a sign. Oh, by the way, the sign's not, you're not going to see the sign for another 700 years. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because he'd be long dead. Yeah. So there had to be some near-term component to that. And I think what, what God is saying is by the time a young woman would conceive and bear a son, and that son would grow up to know good and evil, these two firebrands are going to be long gone. They gave him a time frame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something he could understand. But we know that behind that prophecy was a grander prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit said that. Yes. The Holy Spirit told us that. But why did the translators because they thought that fit better with the concept of a sign. And by the now, way, when that was translated, that, that's two hundred. That, that was quite a while before the birth of Christ. Yeah. Now the other thing here, and, and here's another valid way to understand that. Well, not really. Here's another way to understand it. Isaiah could also have been telling. Um, Ahaz, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now, if I, if I told you, if I just walked up and said, you know, um, my daughter who's a virgin is going to have a baby, a virgin and she will have a baby, how would you interpret that? Right, she just hasn't had kids before. She hasn't had kids before. She's not been married before. Yeah. She's never had sexual relations before, but she will. No, All right, and that will. So that's another way to look at it. That hey, at the time he has, there's a there's a young there's a virgin who is going to bear a son. She's going to get married, bear a son, and by the time that boy is old enough to know right from wrong, good from evil, these two firebrands are going to be long gone. That's a perfectly valid and probably the primary way to understand that. Not that she was a virgin when she bore the son, but she was a virgin at the time the prophecy was given. Yeah. But Mary was a virgin virgin to start out with. See. And that's that's some um, you know necessary thing there. Now here, here's a question. Is it necessary 
to, one, know the virgin birth in order to be saved. Do you need to, do you need to know about the virgin birth in order to be saved? And believe in it. Do you need to know and believe in the virgin birth in order to be saved? I'd be a yo. I say it's a certainty. If you don't believe Christ was born, I think you could be born again and not have enough Bible knowledge to know about the virgin birth. But that means that you don't know about Jesus. No, you know about Jesus. You know he's the Son of God. But you may not have sorted through all the implications of what that means. Yeah. Oh, well, not that you can be saved, then you don't have to. Well, yeah. Now, now, can you be saved and deny the virgin birth? No. No. Right. I, I would go along with that. No. It's a cardinal doctrine. Yeah. I would say if you supposedly come to Christ and you are exposed to the virgin birth and you just think it's a bunch of hocus pocus because some bunk, boy, I go back and look at your salvation. Right, I'd look at that. I'd be worried about somebody who denied that. Yeah. Or Last Temptation. Since we, we talk about this um, Parthenos in the Old Testament and, uh, and the New, is there something in the, the phrasing of those two births that distinguishes the, the virgin? from uh, the early, from the first and the second? I mean, does it say anywhere that Mary was a virgin after the birth? No, she had other children. But I mean, I mean, does it, does it say anywhere that... Oh, I see, okay, so... She had children afterwards. But does it say anywhere that she was a virgin when Christ was born? Yes. She, she had not known a man until... It says that. I mean, remember, she was with child, and the angel has to show up to Joseph and say, hey, don't worry, she's conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it said, Joseph was probably considered the Yeah, and then it said, and then it said, and she knew not a man till after Christ was, yeah. Yeah. Because just by going from the phrase virgin birth, it doesn't say enough. Yeah. But but I do believe that this is a an essential essential doctrine in the sense that you can't deny it and be born again. It's like the resurrection. Can you be born again and not have sorted out all the details of the bodily resurrection of Christ? Yeah. Well, probably. But now, can you deny the physical bodily resurrection and be a Christian? No. No, that's an essential of the faith. Because he's not godly. Right. Right. A couple things that Catholics have right. Yeah, they, every, every once in a while they accidentally hit something right. Um, they just took it too far and said she stayed a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just don't want to. Yeah. They liked yeah. her so much as a virgin they kept it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the virgin birth, and again, the birth, it's, it's a necessary doctrine to understand. Because the it's it, the implications, it's because of the implications of that virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, you've got a Messiah that has the imputed guilt of Adam and the fallen human nature. He's not sinless. He can't be the substitute. 
we got to have a perfect person to be our substitute. All right? So what about the infancy of Christ? Here's the birth of Christ. And you know, I'm not going to go through all the details of the birth of Christ. But we have the infancy of Christ in Luke 2, 8 through 20. And we have the visit by the shepherds. Where was Christ when the shepherds visited? Outside Bethlehem. Yeah, he was in a manger. He was in the inn, or the stables, right? Well, I thought the shepherds didn't visit till... Magi. That was Magi. Oh, no, okay. Remember, the shepherds visited... Right after. Right after his birth. And then you know. showed up years later. Now, now, why... You ever stop and think about that? Why... Why did God show up to the shepherds? Yeah. Yeah, they were the... He talked to the lady at the well. Yeah. He told her that he was the Messiah. Yeah. He purposely bypassed the muckety-mucks. And he went to the lowly people. They were forgotten. Yeah. The forgotten people. Um, he didn't show up to the Pharisees. Didn't show up to Herod. Didn't show up to the Roman Empire. Didn't show up to any of the governors or civil authorities. Annas missed it. Caiaphas missed it. But he showed up to the lowly shepherds. Then on the eighth day, what do you have? What's required by the law on the eighth day? Okay. And what, in order to be circumcised, what had to, what did Jesus' parents have to do? And offer a sacrifice. What sacrifice did they offer? Why? They were very poor. This shows that they were not wealthy by any means. They were very poor. They Joseph was a carpenter. The Greek word is tekton. It refers to a mason worker, a carpenter, someone who's a builder. We get architecture, tecton, a builder, T-E-K-T-O-N. And um, we often say he was a carpenter working in wood, and of course they would work in wood, but Joseph could just as well have been a bricklayer. He could have been a stonemason. He was somebody that worked with his hands. He was, that's what he did for a living. He worked with his hands in that kind of labor. He must have worked hard because he was dead by the time Christ started his ministry, wasn't he? Yeah, he had been dead. You ever think, why, why was he dead? Why did he have to be dead? Not because they focus on him and his life or, or, or the people didn't focus on Mary and Joseph versus Christ. As long as Joseph was alive, what was he? Jesus' father. And the head of the family. Right. If he's dead, who's the head of the family? The firstborn son. Who was Jesus? So Christ couldn't start his ministry until his father died? Or he had to be head of the household? He couldn't start his ministry until his father died. I, I believe that was a necessary thing. He had to get from out from under the shadow of his father, from the sh in that in that culture, out from under the shadow of the father, 
in order for him to strike out on his own and begin his ministry. The interesting thing is that they never picked him a wife. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. he's pretty old. But he was in his 30s when he roughly when he started his ministry. And mm -hmm. they long before then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, back then you were married when you were 13, 14 years old. See, I think, and, and the answer to that is Mary had, Mary, Mary knew some stuff. She was not dumb. Yeah, she, she knew there was something different about Christ. Because, you know, if he was a perfect kid, of course, they were, a, they were, a, they probably were always a working class family. Yeah. So the prospects of getting him a wife might have been less than somebody that had a better standing in the community. But he would have been the desire of every girl in Nazareth to marry. Might not have been so handsome. It probably wasn't. But see, back then, looks had nothing to do with it. Your parents arranged the marriage. Yeah. And you, you lived with what you got stuck with. Your family and your family background is what really was important. Yeah. Who your family was. So if his father died off, then he didn't have time to get married, get to take care of the family. Well, he took care of the family, and he had better things to do than get married. I mean, you know, that's not why he came. Now, his brothers and sisters married, but he didn't. Now, it's interesting here. Let's stop and think about this just a second. This is, this is what you get when you, like, read between the lines or start asking sideways questions. Remember when Christ was... Um, preaching and his mother was outside and his brothers and his family was outside. He said, hey, your mom wants to see you. All right. Well, it says that he was, she was outside with his brothers and sisters. So what does that tell you about his brothers and sisters? That they may be younger. That they were younger. How much younger? Yeah, so they would have been significantly younger. Now, Christ was about 30 when he began his ministry. So he had brothers. You know, it may have been his, you know, the older brothers may have been 25, 24, you know, 23. But the fact that it mentions his sisters means what? They'd probably yet not yet married, so they were younger, which would give you some idea of how long Joseph lived. He probably died right before his ministry. Not, not long before his ministry began. We're not told, but probably not long before Christ began his ministry. His dad has passed away. And the fact that Christ could begin his ministry would intimate what about his brothers? They were able to take care of the family. There was they were able to do that. Yeah. They were able they had gotten to the age where they were able to support the family. The question is though, why why did he look down and talk to John off the cross and give him charge for his mother? Because where was his brothers? They weren't there. They weren't there. I 
Did his brothers believe in him? Yeah. When? Afterwards. Yeah, after it was all. Until then, our you know they'd be walking around. Our brother, the whack job, you know, <laughs> thinks he's the freaking Messiah. Jesus freak, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he did all the healings. I mean, surely they've seen that. They did not believe until after the resurrection. In fact, after the resurrection, Christ showed up personally to his brothers. That's yeah. But you see the circumcision in the temple in Luke 22, 21 through 39. And of course, who's in the temple but Anna, the prophetess, is in there. And Simeon is in there. Anna. Both of them. Anna, the What's that? You said Anna, the prophetess, was in the temple. Yeah. She was a prophetess in the sense that she was waiting for the Messiah. She was not a preacher, sorry. No women preachers. Yeah. Um, in the sense that you speak a message for God, not in the sense that it's a continuing office. It says in the last days your sons and daughters will prophesy. What does it mean? Well, what does it mean to prophesy? No. To preach, to proclaim. That's that's the ninety nine point nine percent of the meaning, has nothing to do with foretelling the future. You're no, I'm not kidding. Well, in a sense, you're foretelling the truth. If you don't get born again, no. you're gonna die lost. No, a prophet. Well, what, 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 Isaiah, ninety percent of what Isaiah did was what? Prophesy. No. Preach. You get you get hang out all these whack jobs. That's and I went to see and I didn't know it was a prophet. He was a prophet. <laughs> and he was oh, there on Bell Avenue. I yes. see the church on the side. I see the sign. I went. We went at seven o'clock. I left at twelve twenty. Wow. The prophet was there. He's from Florida or someplace, wasn't he? Yeah. And the prophet foretell, he was telling people what they had. Now, this lady, he said, he walked up to the lady in the aisle, and down the aisle, and he stopped at a, at a row, and he said, come out. And she came out, and he said, I see uh, kidney failure, something wrong with your kidney. He said, do I know you? She said, no. He, and, you know, she said she didn't know him. And she, no, they weren't cousins. It was a black man and a white lady. Whatever, I mean, they could be cousins. But anyway, and she said, I'm going to die. Now, what is that? Is that foretelling? Oh, oh, that's, a, that's a demon after. That's a demon. That guy's not of God. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that, you don't, don't go there. That guy's not of God. I mean, you're telling me God's going to give somebody the gift of prophecy so they can go around and tell you you've got kidney stones? That's a party trick. Did it, did it uh, enhance the, the body? Well, then he laid hands on her. There you go. Did he get a big offering from her? I don't know. Yeah. We'll find out if she's on dialysis this week. <laughs> but, that's it. but the next thing is, she belonged to a church in Lorraine. So I'm going to find out. The next thing, after, after it's all said and done and all the highline stuff, then he takes up the connection. 
Here it comes. Somebody in here is supposed to give a thousand dollars. Oh my yeah. goodness. I've heard that one. I know you didn't put no money in. Tell me you didn't put any money in. I didn't put it. All right. I knew I, I knew I was in the wrong place. I said, you know what I said? Every time he said a thousand dollars, I said, my granddaughter in college. My granddaughter's in college. That's all I think. My granddaughter in college. But some woman stepped out, but guess what I think? I'm using my head. I believe she was planning. Yeah. I believe she was playing. She come out just as good with her checkbook. I believe, then he goes on and stuff. Then and it probably wasn't even a good check. It was just to <laughs> prime the prompt to get the rest of the so then he folks down to. to yeah, yeah. Then he this, got this, him down to $15. That was one off. That then guy. He that off for himself. <laughs> then he talked about he need a jet. Yeah. I, to get around. Talk yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy. Yeah, I see I the parking lot pull over there. Yeah, how how is it? They always come around the money. I'll tell you. What you gonna say? Now in that property, I bet he was dressed no. in nice too, wasn't he? No. Listen, listen. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing to understand. We're getting off topic, but this is important. So that you're not around these these wackolas. I might be able to prophesize. It one of these wackolas. All right. You got to go back and ask what is the nature of the true I'm going to use prophet messenger of God. What do, what are they like? What is their character like? Yeah, well they okay. What's their character like? If God is going to give somebody the gift of prophecy or the gift of healing, pick one. Pick one of the miraculous gifts. He's going to give them the the biblical the biblical mm -hmm. gift of healing or the biblical gift of prophecy, what what, what kind of person he's going to give it to? They've been to jail. They've All right. been to prison. They've been to prison. They've always been to prison. Blameless. All right. You look at the... And then, and then you compare that to the character of these jokers. And they're opposite. Totally. It's total opposite. That's a no-brainer. Who is the greatest prophet? John the Baptist. God, Jesus said that. Look at his life. He was raised up from birth, not, not to have any strong... And in fact... Brain. And not only that, but he lived out in the wilderness, and he ate, ate locusts locust. and wild honey. Yeah. Dressing all, all and he didn't yeah. dress good. He no. came, and he, 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 he probably looked like a street bum, bum. Uh -huh. as far as cleanliness and hygiene. But the message he gave was a true message. But you and know, he didn't get but, no money. He just yeah. got his head. And, and the point. Yeah. This guy this guy is a false prophet. There's no doubt about it. And he's only Christ, 20 Good for him. Christ. Christ, when, when Christ sent out the 70 in Mark, he sent out the 70 to. What did he tell them they were not allowed to take? They couldn't take nothing, nothing extra. With, no extra shoes, with, no extra money, no nothing. nothing. And, and what they would do, when they went to a town, they were to ask who's worthy in the town. They were to stay there until what? Until they left. Mm -hmm. He specifically put up barriers that they were not allowed to do it for money. For money. And they did you ever, did, did Peter ever take yeah. money for no. healing? No. Nope. And in fact, when Simon Magus said, show me the trick, I'll pay you for it, what did Peter tell him? You go to hell and take your money with you. I mean, that's the Schaefer translation, but your money perish with you. 
These guys are false prophets. They are as phony as a $3 bill. Well, the one he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto thee, right? Take up thy bed and walk. The, yeah, the true prophet, the true man of God is not in the ministry for the money. He's not out to take money from people. He's not out. He does it for free. But now wait. Now. You realize you, you, could, you could learn to pick somebody out of a crowd that's on dialysis. Yeah. Yeah, because you can by look. I, I know, I'm sure that. These but guys are good at You're not supposed to take money. So now ministers, ministers in the church get... Uh, if they're in the church in order to make a living, they've got the wrong... They've got the wrong yeah. job. It's not wrong. Now I heard this man no. say he quit an $80,000 a year job. Because he can make $8 million a year fleecing yeah. these people. No, not, not, I'm, no, I'm talking about another minister. I heard the minister say he, he, he gave up an $80,000 a year job to go into ministry, and he ain't, and he's not even making barely $25,000 in fact. Supporting mm his -hmm. Well, the church has to pay for that. So what, what is that? It goes back to your attitude. Paul says that the man of God is not greedy of filthy lucre. Right. You're not greedy of it. You're not in it for the ministry. You're not always harping about money. But you live on what God gives you. Yeah, you live You live on what God gives you. They kill me about my, my, my servant is worthy of, of... Let me tell you what my dad did. My dad felt a call to go into the ministry. He had his union card for construction and heavy equipment operator, and he was making good money. Mm -hmm. You know, working the big construction sites, driving the big equipment. And he had four kids, and I was one of them. I was in third grade. And he had a mother-in-law and two sister-in-laws that was living with us. So you've got four kids, six in our family, plus my grandmother and my two aunts. He left that good-paying job and took a small church down in Creston, Ohio that had just split and went from making good money to making $60 a week. And believe me, he did not go into it for the money. No. And people told him, says, Joe, you're going to starve to death in six months. And did it get tough? Yes, it got tough, but God miraculously provided and we look back on those days with great joy and memory of how God provided. Mm -hmm. But he didn't do it for the money. He did it because it was a call. And he was a successful pastor for 30 plus years. Yeah, it goes back to the attitude of why you Never do made it. A lot of money. Okay. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to pay your pastor? No, it's not. And, and, and you should pay him, from your perspective, you should pay him a reasonable salary. But how can you pay a reasonable salary when when your church goes from uh, 200 down to about 40? You pay what you can. And if he's a true man of God and that's what so God's called him to do, he's going to stick it out. You're stuck in a contract of paying from when you first come in and then you drop well, the address. Yeah, I don't know the answer. That's He can't expect that. If you got a church of 40, you can't be expecting to make. You, you got to do a tent ministry. You got to get a job on the side to do that. You know, you know a good pastor, 
churches and stuff, a good pastor would look at that circumstances and say, you know what, you guys can't afford to pay this dollar. We got to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. It goes back to your attitude. I mean, it, it does. And, you know, I'm not trying to hold myself up as a model, but, you know, I get paid a small amount of money to teach Moody classes, but I may not get paid at all for teaching this class because there's not enough students. Mm -hmm. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because I get paid some small amount of money. I do it because that's what God's called me to do. I teach. Mm -hmm. And if he happens to give me some on the side, well, that's all right, but I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because I want to teach. It goes back to your attitude. But this guy, this prophet guy here that you ran into, that guy is as false as the day is long. And he, he needs to be avoided. Yeah, and you go to church from seven to twelve. It was all about him. Yeah, the the was Christ exalted? I don't think so. No, then he's he's a false preacher. I mean, what what did Christ say? I I chose to preach Christ and Him crucified. But the thing of it is, he never took a text. You don't need to take a text. You can he, wing it. He, that's what he did. He winged. He would quote scriptures. Well, I mean, that part was true. But it was all out of context. He yeah. probably applied it all yeah, out of context. It all over the place. It's yeah, a, it's, it's Bible talk, Jesus talk, God talk, yeah. but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. He uses a lot of words, but he doesn't right. say nothing. Right, he used a lot of words, but he didn't say nothing. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I think that's, 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 that's how it comes to church, though. I, 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 that's what I'm scared of, is, is that mentality. Of, um, People you know, are looking for the sensational... They're looking for the message from God. They're looking for the charismatic guy to come in and do this kind of stuff. And Satan does so much yeah. damage what, like that. Yeah. 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 It's just damage beyond damage. All I know is this. The true man of God, I can hear a preacher. I can hear him preach. And I can tell whether he's preaching from God or it's his own message. Yep. And, and some people he would like, Low on them, they fall right out. Means nothing. Irrelevant. So it means he's got bad breath or something. I don't know. I think there's people that get caught up in that kind of stuff. And I, I heard of someone I grew up with. He was talking real big about Benny Hinn. Mm. And he just, you know, he made this statement. He said, the Holy Ghost is on that man so much that he can't even do this without people falling over. And all it is is they're already pre-wired to believe this guy. Mm -hmm. So anything he does, they just react to it without even realizing they're reacting. Yeah, and and the thing is, the Holy Ghost is not bizarre. Okay. I, you know, it's interesting. I was reading a, an account by um, J.C. Ryle, who's founded Promise Keepers, which I avoided my entire life, and I will continue to avoid. And uh, J.C. Ryle is the pastor of Coach McCartney, who started the Founders Keepers. All right, and he went to and Coach McCartney was the coach at Colorado, was Colorado football, and he remembers the um, his pastor coming and saying, "You know, I had a dream, and God gave me a vision that you were going to win this football game." All right, now I'm thinking here. I look at the Bible where God has revealed himself in Scripture. 
and has told us spiritual truth. Is that the same God that's going to go around telling who's going to win football games? No. <laughs> no. Can I say something just for fun? He told them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, you'll catch more fish. And they did, and they caught a bunch of fish. Yeah, they did. I should say that. This is not, the God of Scripture is not, to me, that's blasphemy. To me, that is making God into this buffoon. Yeah. All right? That's out giving prophecies about who's going to win a football game and you know what the winning lottery number is. That's not that's not God. That is not the voice of God. He doesn't fill the brackets in the NCAA. I am it sorry. Is they're serving God to get something in this life. Yes. And that's the defining definition between heresy and the true believer. The true believer realizes we're sojourners in this world. This is not our final place. We're mm -hmm. just going through this world. And in the process of going through this world, we're learning about God, learning who He is, following His will for our life, that ultimately we spend eternity with Him in heaven. Yeah. And it's not about money. It's not about wealth. It's not about power. It's not about prestige. And whenever you're around somebody that that's what it's about, mm -hmm. you're around a false teacher. I think when you put a price on something like if, you, if you're giving the word, then you got to add a price to it. If Benny Hinn had the gift of healing, wow. he could walk into Illyria Memorial Hospital and, and clear out every room. Mm -hmm. I still say that. all these prosperity and he can't. preachers, send them over to the third world country mm -hmm. where the people are the poorest. Preach that gospel over there see where it goes. Yeah. These guys, these guys have such a hot spot in hell, I don't even want to talk about it. Anyways, get back to this a little bit. Well, um, the bottom line is, there aren't any prophecies these days. No. God is not out giving Are prophecy. Are there any apostles these days? No. no. Not in the sense of being personally commissioned by Christ. Yes, in the sense that you are sent by Christ, little a, but not in the big A sense, like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. So you can call yourself, a minister can call himself, call himself an apostle. If by that you mean he is one sent. In that case, we're all apostles. Okay. We're all sent ones. Okay. But we don't have the title Apostle Schaefer as I'm some great big muckety-muck or something like that. It's all an issue of pride, arrogance, pomposity, and I just remember what they, they, they don't even know what they're talking about. They think they're teachers of the law. They don't even know what they're talking about. They're to be avoided. Where are, they, where are we going? They're, they're to be avoided. scary to be that close to Satan at work. You know, I would, because I didn't, I didn't know it was a, what it was, the, the, what prophecy, whatever it is. I went for a revival. They uh, tagged it as a revival with the prophecy there, you know. So I was under the assumption that it was a revival going on. But to me, when you when you have a revival, I should have, my, my flag should have went up because they said they had stayed there the night before late. And that should have been a flag for me right there. Oh, and I knew that if I go on Friday night, they figure people don't have to go to work the next day. 
they won't even stay even longer. Did the so guy sing or anything? Huh? Did he sing or anything? Yeah, he sing. He had to sing, and then the 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 um, the intercom had to be at the top peak. It was like, and then they, huh? then they tried to use the guilt on people like. Uh, if you was at a ball game, what are you doing? It's so loud at a ball game. They always throw those guilt things on you. That was another flag to me. I'm I'm tired of using. If you had a ball game, you could you could do that. And then if you were when you was younger, you was out late at night. You went out at nine o'clock and you stayed out this time of night. So they use all these little gift trips on you, so to to get you feeling guilty. And why this and this thing? I pressure sales. That's all it is. Yeah, and this and this thing wow. is blasting, and he could sing, he could sing, and then the guy that that the, the minister of the church, the, the minister of the church, he is like um, one of the top organ players around. He, I mean, he way up there, and he he go around, and he plays for this guy uh, around the country, mm-hmm. and so uh, so they was playing and singing, and it's all hype. But, it's but all. You know one thing for sure. I don't remember not one song. No kidding. I do not remember <laughs> not one song he sung. It was like a show. And I thought, man, I'm just I was just wore out for looking. Can you imagine can you imagine Christ doing that? He would lose me. No, can you imagine Christ? No, I can't imagine. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't be doing all this. It was like a distraction. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean it I mean there's there's no it's a no-brainer to me. I mean, look, Janice and Jambres could turn their rods into snakes. Mm-hmm. You numerical, it's irrelevant. That doesn't mean it's from God. The problem is we think that every sort of whiz bang sign kind of thing is from God. That's a bad Satan can do it. And Satan will do it to to fake you out. He doesn't care what you believe, just don't believe the truth. Anyways, let's get back to this and take our break. Um, Christ was, we have the vigil by the Magi. What are, what are those? The kingmakers. And um, the Magi went to Herod first. Now, Herod died in 4 BC, so that tells you what about the birth of Christ? It had to be before. Had to be before then. So, probably around 5 or 6 BC. Um, Matthew tells Jesus that Jesus and his parents were in their own home. So what does that mean? They left the stable, so evidently they had gone back, or or they 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 were probably still in Bethlehem, but they were not in the stable. All right, they they had graduated up to something else. Um, Christ was killed in the year thirty two A.D. Um, if he was two years old at the time of the visit by the Magi, he would have been about thirty seven when he was crucified. And some people say, well, we have a problem now because Luke said he was about 30 years old. But what did Luke say? 30. He was about, about, 30. about 30. He didn't give us an exact time. All right. So when was Christ born? Probably somewhere around AD or BC 5 or 6. And also here, when Herod had the children killed, what did he have them? Two years and young, younger. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, look, this guy had one foot on a banana peel and another foot in a grave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's killing these little kids because they're a threat to his rule. The guy's just bad, just evil. Yeah. Um, we know about the Magi. Um, they first appeared in the 7th century as a tribe within media. 
Um, originally, they were involved in magical cult, magical cults and that, um, but they were monotheists, later became Zoro Zoroastrians. And in Daniel, we find the Chaldeans as high-ranking government officials, because Daniel was one of the Chaldeans. And it may have been the fact that Daniel imparted to them some information about the Messiah because they were looking for the king, right? And you can do a little research on the Magi there. What's the response of Herod? He wanted to find the young king so he could kill him. And when the Magi didn't go back and tell him who he was, he had all the children two years and under killed. He was tired of killing off his own family. Yeah. No, probably a couple hundred maybe. And, and the thing is, someone said it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Yeah, this guy was bad. And of course, where did Joseph and Mary go? They went down to Egypt for a while and then came back and lived in Nazareth. What about the childhood of Jesus? We don't know anything about it. The only time we have him showing up is when he was 12 years old in the temple. Um, but the Bible does say he grew up and he increased in stature and favor with man and God. Grew up. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.